Good morning, everyone. It is good to be here with you once again for our time in the Word of God. This morning, we are continuing our current message series, Thinking Biblically. For the past two weeks, as you know, our brother Paul Johnson has spoken on the universal church, the local church, and church offices. Today, we are thinking biblically about this, about the qualifications of elders. Paul the Apostle, he wrote, he spoke about these qualifications in his letters to Timothy and to Titus, his sons in the faith. Timothy needed to select elders for the church in Ephesus, while Titus, he needed to select elders for the churches in the island of Crete. Paul gave them a very detailed description of the essential qualifications that a man must possess to be ordained as an elder. He spoke of those qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Those are the exact passages that we will read right now. If you are able, let us all stand in the presence of the Lord for the reading of God's word, beginning in Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where the Bible says, it is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Let us read now in Titus chapter 1. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for once again standing here in your presence. And it is our goal, 
It is the desire in our hearts to exalt you, to magnify you. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would minister to our hearts, for we know that your word is powerful and everlasting forevermore. We pray, Lord, that we will grow in the understanding of the Scriptures in this, oh, such an important topic. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Recently, I heard the results of a Pew Research study that showed that respect for authority in our country is at an all-time low. Back in 1960, before the Vietnam War and before Watergate, 75% of all Americans trusted authorities, including governmental authorities and religious authorities, 75% of the country. Fast forward 60 years to 2020, and that number has fallen to 25%. That means today, three out of four Americans do not trust their leaders. And among young adults aged 18 through 29, only 11% trust authorities. Nine out of 10 of our youngsters do not respect our leaders. Our society has developed a highly cynical and polarizing view of our political leaders. But what about church leaders? We cannot control the world's opinion, but as the body of Christ, we better be sure that all our church leaders meet the qualifications as described in the Bible. And so this morning, it is our intent to review all the requirements as stipulated in the Scriptures for a man to be ordained into the office of elder, which is the same as the office of bishop, which is the same as the office of overseer. As Paul clarified last week, there is no such a thing as the office of pastor. But to pastor, to shepherd, is the role, the function, the ministry of elders. That is what an elder does. An elder pastors. He shepherds as an under-shepherd, under the guide of the head of the church, the chief shepherd of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is important for us to know and for us to understand what are the qualifications, despite us not having the ability to control the world's opinion, as I said, we must know that our church leaders are faithful to meeting the requirements as stipulated in the Bible. First, Paul says in verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. That word statement when spoken here, it is referring to common sayings that were accepted among Christians during those times as a statement that could be trusted as true. One of those statements was that if any man wanted to become an elder, he was desiring to do a fine work. And Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, he confirms that. 
He says, yes, indeed, it is a, a trusted common saying. It is a trustworthy statement. Any man who aspires to become an elder, he is desiring to do a fine work. However, that does not mean that any man is qualified to be an elder. And for this reason, Paul begins to specify what those qualifications are. In verse 2, he says, it is going to work eventually, yes. An overseer then must be above reproach. That is the overarching qualification for a man to be qualified as an elder. The elder must be above reproach. And must is an imperative. There is no alternative. There can be no compromise. An elder must be above reproach. But the question is, what does it mean to be above reproach? Does it mean that all elders are perfect? Of course not. Just ask our wives. <laughs> if perfection is the standard, then no man will be qualified for ministry. In simplistic terms, to be above reproach simply means that if the man comes under inspection, he must not have any open accusation against him. There is nothing compromising in his life that would preclude the church leaders from ordaining him as a bishop, as an overseer, as an elder. But it is interesting that when Paul says here to Timothy that the elder must be above reproach, this is what he says when he writes to Titus in chapter 1. Appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, if any man is above reproach. The same expression appears in both verses However, when we read in the original, the apostle spoke two different words in the original Greek. When he was writing to Timothy, he used the word for above reproach, referring to the man's moral status. He must be above reproach morally. There is, there is no unrepentant, unrepented sin in his life. However, when he spoke to Titus, he used the word for above reproach that refers to the man's legal status. He must not have any valid criminal accusation against him. Like, he must not be in the FBI's most wanted list. He is speaking of the man's legal status. And in verse 7, he says, For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. He cannot have any outstanding, justifiable legal action against him because that will compromise him to be a steward in the management of the affairs of God. And it is likely that Paul the Apostle used that word referring to legal status when writing to Titus because he was dealing with the man from Crete. He was dealing with the Cretans of whom Paul had said this, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, 
Lazy gluttons. Wow. Say what you really mean, Paul. Uh, he is actually quoting one of their poets, speaking of their own countrymen. How can he be? He said, they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. They were in it for the money, you see. And probably they were, they were already known for something financially unethical or even illegal. They were the prosperity gospel preachers of Paul's day. Paul says to Timothy, when you are considering your pool of potential candidates to eldership, do not include this man who are already in legal trouble. And so we can see, as he says to Timothy, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. To ensure that a man is above reproach, morally and legally, the Bible demands that before the church leaders ordain any man as an elder, he must first undergo a period of evaluation. He must first have his life inspected. And so Paul tells Timothy, do not be too quick to ordain anyone into pastoral ministry. But he must first have passed an inspection of his life. Otherwise, without that evaluation, Timothy could become an accomplice in ordaining someone unqualified for ministry. He says, do not share in the responsibility for the sins of others. He will be guilty of his own sins of which they have not been, he has not yet suffered repentance and suffered the conviction of God in his life. However, Timothy would also be participating in the man's sin simply because he did not do his own due diligence to investigate the man's life. He says, keep yourself free from sin. And he goes further and say in verse 25, the sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. The judgment that Paul is speaking here is not the judgment of the day of the Lord in the future. The judgment that he is referring to here is that evaluation period. It's that period of investigation that the church leaders must perform in the life of the candidate for eldership. According to biblical precepts, the elders must do their due diligence in making the candidate to undergo a period of evaluation in his life, of his life. Paul says the sins of some men are quite obvious even before that evaluation period begins. Timothy, you might not even have to get started with that evaluation because in that man's life, his sins are so obvious and already known by so many that he's obviously not qualified for ordination, so you should not even begin to consider him. However, others, their sins will come to light during the period of evaluation, and afterwards, you'll be able to see that that man is not qualified. In verse 25, he says, Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, 
and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Paul is saying that the results of the investigation in a man's life would have the results similar to our works. If our works are good, it will be evident to all that we have done a good work. But if our works, but if our works are bad, even when we try to hide them, Paul is saying they will one day come to light. Your sin will find you out. He says, the bad deeds in a man's life cannot be concealed. Of course, that is no guarantee that during the evaluation period that his bad deeds and unrepented sins will be revealed. However, if and when the man's sins are finally revealed, the elders will have the obligation to confront the man and investigate the case. However, they have already done their obligation Even though the man might have already been ordained, the elders would have the obligation to investigate the case and see if he can be restored to ministry. But at least the elders' consciences will be clear because they did what the Bible mandated them to do. He went through the examination period. And so it is clear that above all, a man must be above reproach to be considered for the office of elder. Above reproach morally, and legally. However, it is important for us to understand that the example that the elder must have in his life before the Lord should serve as an example for all of us as Christians in the church. Paul himself, he confirms this in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. A Christian in the church cannot say, yes, I want to see all the qualifications in the elders of my church, but I'm not an elder. I can sin as much as I want. Well, it doesn't quite work that way. Yes, an elder is held to a higher standard. However, he must be the example of all Christians in pursuing Christ-likeness. We want to pursue, we want to see the example of Christ in their lives so that we all together, elders and church members, we can continue to pursue the ultimate example, the example of Christ, the example we want to grow in Christ-likeness. And so, as we said, the Bible has established that the greatest qualification in an elder's life must be that the overarching qualification is that he is above reproach. Paul then goes on to tell us 14 requirements that an elder must possess to be ordained into the ministry. 14 requirements that can be divided into four areas. They are testimony, temperament, talent, and trustworthiness. The elder who is found to be above reproach, he is found so because he is above reproach in his testimony, in his temperament, in his talent, and in his trustworthiness. Beginning with his testimony, the Bible tells us in verses 2 and 3, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable. Of the qualifications named here in these verses, these are the ones related to the man's testimony. He must be the husband of one wife, temperate, respectable, hospitable, not addicted 
to wine. For a man to be above reproach in his testimony, he must be the husband of one wife, temperate, respectable, hospitable, and not addicted to wine. First, Paul says in his testimony, he must be the husband of one wife. Now, it is important for us to understand that this qualification does not necessarily imply that those who are single or widowers or even biblically divorced cannot be ordained as elders. What Paul is saying is that for those men who happen to be married, they must be the husband of one wife. I had discussed this qualification with our brother Paul Johnson, and he had a, a very important insight into the historical meaning of this requirement. In those times of the early church, within the Greco-Roman world, when a man, when a husband was invited to a social event, his wife would stay home. The man would go alone. However, some men would take that opportunity to bring along a quote-unquote female friend, someone like a modern-day escort. And Paul was saying that this must not be so in the life of the man who is married. If he is to be above reproach, he must not follow the customs of the age. He must not have any companions on the side. He must not have any involvement in any illicit sexual relationship. But he must be the husband of one wife, whether she is right there with him or when she or when he is alone. Overall, this has to do with marital faithfulness. The man aspiring to become a bishop, an overseer, an elder, he must be faithful to his wife and to her alone. Next, he says that he must be temperate. Now, by the sound of, by the sound of that word temperate, you would think that that should be a qualification under temperament as the words sound alike. However, temperate here means that he is not intoxicated. Now, when Paul is talking about the man not being intoxicated, he's not referring to drunkenness. Believe me, he will talk about that in just a little while. But he's referring to the fact that the man should be clear-minded, as you may have even in one of your Bible translations. He must be clear-minded. He must be vigilant so that nothing will cloud his judgment. He will not be intoxicated. He will not allow himself to be influenced by external parties, by external forces, so that his judgment is not impartial. He says next that the man in his testimony, he must be respectable. Paul used the same word in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, referring to wearing respectable clothing. However, we cannot imagine that Paul is just saying that a man to be considered for eldership, that he simply must be well-dressed. Obviously, a man can be well-dressed, but his behavior not worthy of any respect at all. What Paul is referring to here is that the man must be respected among the saints. If the church cannot respect him as a man, how can the church respect him as an elder? Next, he says that the elder must be hospitable. As we studied a few weeks ago, a few months ago, in the 
letter to the Hebrews, we saw in chapter 13 that the Bible exhorts all Christians, not only elders, to be hospitable, especially during those times, as you may remember, to save saints and preachers from persecution during those times. However, hospitality obviously transcends time. It is the expectation of the Lord that even in our days, especially our elders would be hospitable, that they would open their homes to the saints and to those in need. And lastly, in his testimony, to be above reproach, the elder must be or must not be addicted to wine. The elder must not allow drunkenness to tarnish his testimony. Now, it is true that the Bible does not speak against drinking wine, but the Bible does speak against drunkenness. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. The man must be above reproach in his testimony by being the husband of one wife, by being temperate, not intoxicated, being able to make good judgments, by being a respectable man, by being hospitable, and by not being a drunkard, by not being an addicted to wine. Next, following the same basic text, we see other qualifications in those verses that are related to his temperament. And they are, he is prudent, he is not pugnacious, he is gentle, he is peaceable. First, for the elder to be above reproach in his temperament, Paul says by the Spirit of God that he must be a prudent man. In your translation, you may read that he must be sober or that he must be self-controlled. And self-control is one of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. Therefore, this applies to all of us Christians, but especially to elders in the sense that he must be self-controlled, he must be prudent in making his choices. The elder is prudent in setting his priorities. Should I read the Bible and prepare the message, or should I watch the game? Should I pray, or should I binge on Netflix? Should I go to church, or should I go to the gym? Obviously, there is nothing inherently wrong with watching sports or exercising, but that should not be to the detriment of his spiritual responsibilities. When it comes to self-control, the elder must be a man who knows to make the right choices. His life is prioritized according to the commandments of the Word of God. He makes the right choices. Secondly, Paul says that the elder must not be someone who is pugnacious. In the original, he uses an expression that says that the elder must not throw punches. He must not be someone who is violent. The elder cannot be someone who wants to punch people who don't agree with him. That wouldn't bode too well. Instead, the elder must be gentle. He must remain calm. He must be gentle when dealing with difficult people and difficult circumstances. In Titus chapter 1, that may be read as, he is not self-willed. It's not his way or the highway. But he remains calm. He remains gentle in his approach to resolve conflicts. And lastly, in his temperament to be above reproach, an elder must be peaceable. He's peaceable. 
In Titus, you may read that, you may read that he is not quick-tempered. He is not argumentative. He is not always picking a fight or continue to argue with no ending. No. But that does not mean that the elder would not stand up for the truth. That does not mean that the elder is a coward. It means that simply he will speak the truth and he will say his point according to his biblical principles, but let the conviction come from God and not from throwing punches. He follows the commandment of God, the wise commandment in the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs 20, as the Bible says, avoiding a fight is a mark of honor. Only fools insist on arguing. Only fools insist on quarreling. The elder recognizes that there are some people who like chaos. They cannot leave the issue alone. You want the argument to stop, but they keep going and going and then and then and then and then. Have you ever met anyone like that? They can drive you to the edge of insanity. Now, don't elbow anybody next to you because you'll be on your own there. <laughs> but they are out there. An elder must not be someone like that. An elder is not a fool because only fools insist on arguing. And of the qualifications that we see in this passage, there is only one left, and it is the one related to the man's talent, or more appropriately spoken, related to the man's spiritual gift. And that is that he must be above reproach in his ability to teach. This is the only qualification that, distinct, that distinguishes an elder from a deacon. All the qualifications described for an elder are virtually the same as those described for a deacon, except for this one. An elder must be someone with the ability to teach. The Bible tells us in, Eph in, Eph in Ephesians chapter 4, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. An elder must be someone who is known for his Bible teaching. If you are an elder, you are a teacher. Those two qualities go together. An elder is someone with thorough knowledge of the scriptures, being able to interpret the scriptures correctly and according to the gift that God has given him to impart that truth to the saints. An elder must be able to teach. And that, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 5, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. The elder, what the elder does is to pastor. But it is something that cannot be disconnected or separated from his ability also to preach and teach the word of God. And lastly, we have trustworthiness. That is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the remainder of the verses that we read at the beginning, from verses 3, the second part, until verse 7, where the Bible says, he must be free from the love of money. 
He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he would not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. All the qualifications we see in these verses, they are applicable to the man's trustworthiness. He must be free from the love of money, manage his family well, not a new convert, and he must have a good reputation with outsiders. First, Paul says that the man must be free from the love of money. He must not be a lover of money. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 says that the love of money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say that money is the root of all evil, but the love of it is. An elder cannot be someone who is a lover of money. In Titus, that expression spoken by Paul says that he must not be someone fond of sordid gain. Remember, he was talking about the Cretans who could be involved in some kind of enterprise to do something illegal. The Bible warns us that in these end times, there will be many who will be lovers of money. And unfortunately, the Bible tells us that many of those will call themselves Christians. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of money. The closer we get to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, more and more men will be lovers of money. And you may say, well, preacher, this is talking about people who are really in the world. The world doesn't have love for God. They only have love for money. Yeah, but Paul clarifies in verse 5 that he is including those who are self-deceived, those who call themselves Christians and really are not. Because he says in verse 5, they hold to a form of godliness. Although they have denied its power, avoid such men as this. They hold to a form of godliness, meaning that they portray themselves to be Christians, to be religious. But they have denied the power of God in their lives because their testimony is a contradiction. There is no evidence that the power of God has ever changed their lives. They're either self-deceived or deceiving others, but they are certainly not Christians. They are simply lovers of money. Paul says, avoid such men as this. Now, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 5, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Why? One of the qualifications, as we said, in the man's trustworthiness is for him not to be a lover of money. However, how can the church leaders, how can the church as a whole, know if the man is a lover of money? How can they determine that the candidate is indeed in love with money? Only God knows the heart. Yes, it is true, as we saw, the Bible mandates an examination period, but unless he has a record of racketeering, extortion, embezzlement, and security fraud, how exactly is the church going to know that he is a lover of money in his heart? 
For that reason, it might be that he passes his evaluation period. It might be that he is even ordained. It might be that he's in the ministry for a long time. But unfortunately, he comes under the suspicion of being a mishandler of the church finances. And the Bible tells us that the elders then, when they become known of that fact, they must approach the elder according to biblical protocols, as we see here. They cannot go and approach the elder who has been ordained if he's being suspected of he, he's being suspected of not handling money correctly or in a fraudulent way. The elders cannot go to him simply by the testimony of one person. But they must have at least two or three witnesses saying the same thing about the man. This is following the principles of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. Two or three witnesses. When the elders approach him, if he is repentant, if he confesses his sin and he Repent, the elders who have to make a determination if he can be restored to the ministry. But those who continue in sin, they have a pattern of habitually sinning in their love of money. In the accusations being proved correct, the elders will also have to make a determination if that man needs to be dismissed from ministry, following the discipline practice as stipulated by the Lord Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 18. He must be rebuked, he must be approached first, then by the words of the witnesses, and if they continue in sin, he must be rebuked in the presence of all. Not all elders, but all the church, everyone. So that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. And the Lord needs to give discernment and wisdom to the church leaders when they come to a situation such as that. The Bible tells us that the elder must be someone who is not a lover of money, but also someone who manages his family well. Again, this does not mean that those who are single or widowers, that they cannot be an elder. But Paul once again is saying, those who happen to be married, they must manage their families well. He says, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? If a man is married and his life is being examined, he must be someone who takes care of his family well. He is a man who respects his wife. He is a man who ministers to them at home for his spiritual growth and for her spiritual growth. He is someone who is wise as a steward of the finances that God has placed under his management. He doesn't go into unnecessary debt, spending money foolishly. But for those who are married with children, Paul says that he must keep his children under control without dignity. Now, some commentators say that if the candidate to eldership has children who are not saved, he cannot be ordained. He's unqualified on the basis of his children not being Christians. While other scholars say that if the man has been ordained and his children were considered to be Christians, but after years, one of his children abandons the faith, they say that the elder must then step down from ministry because his family no longer can be considered qualified according to their interpretation of these verses. 
This cannot be the correct interpretations. Otherwise, no man could ever be ordained. Because how will the church leaders, how will the entire church know if the man's children will remain faithful to the Lord in the future? How can you know if someone is truly saved? The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, that only the Lord knows those who are truly His. But if I am a man who has been ordained at the age of 40, and now 30 years after into the ministry, the church is flourishing, and I am 70 years of age, and now my 50-year-old son, he says, Dad, I don't believe in God anymore. I have just become an atheist. So that man, at 70 years of age, after 30 years of a fruitful ministry, he must abandon and he must step down from ministry? I don't believe so. That is nonsensical. What the Bible is telling us here is in reference to the man's younger children. His young children. The man then must keep his children under control. It doesn't say under salvation. Only God knows that. Even today, if a man has been ordained under the qualification and interpretation that his two, three, five, four, twelve children, they are all Christians. You know, I believe that when we get to heaven, there will be many people who will see there whom here on earth we did not expect them to go. And at the same token, I believe that when we get to heaven, there will be people here on earth that we said, oh, they are a sure bet. But when we get there, they will be nowhere to be found. No man would ever be qualified if that is the correct interpretation because the church and the church leaders cannot know the future. This is in reference to the man's younger children. He must do his best to bring his children, to give them an upbringing in the, ad in the admonition of the Lord. He must do his best for his children to be obedient and respectful to him. Otherwise, if he doesn't care for the children in his own family, as Paul says, how would he take care of the families of the church? That is the meaning of these verses. The next qualification is he must be free from the love of money, he must manage his household well, and he must not be a new convert. The Bible says in verse 6, and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. The candidate to eldership must not be someone who is a new believer. He must not be new to the faith. Why? So that he will not fall into the same condemnation as the devil. What was Satan's condemnation? He became proud. He became arrogant. He considered himself to be equal with God. And for that, God expelled him from heaven. And he's condemned to this moment. The Bible is saying that a man who is new to the faith... He may become conceited, he may become arrogant and proud as the devil did for being placed in such a high-profile position. And he may think that the work he does, it's all about honoring him and not honoring God. And unfortunately, there are many who may even be mature in the faith who do think that it's all about them and not about God. And lastly, Paul says that the man also must have a good reputation with those outside the church. The Bible says, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. The elders have the obligation during the examination period to ask the candidate if he has 
any open, justifiable accusation among the community that would disqualify him from ordination. The elders must ask the man what is his reputation in the community. Because if the elders do not conduct that examination period, and it is not found out that the man has a very bad reputation in the community, the Bible says that he will fall into reproach. That is, that he will be disgraced when unbelievers will begin justifiably accusing him and talking badly about him because of something that he has done and is still not resolved. Not only that, he will fall into that disgrace and he will fall into the snare of the devil, which can be related to the fact that he will not even try to be a faithful preacher in the discharge of his duties before the church for fear of being recognized or publicly shamed. Someone may say, well, it is clear that a candidate to eldership must have a good reputation with unbelievers after he became a Christian. But I read this week that some scholars say that for a man to be considered to the office of elder, he must have a clean past as an unbeliever. He must have a perfect reputation even in his life before Christ. Well, if that is the case, I don't know what I'm doing here. If that is the case, I don't know how Paul would have been led by the Spirit to say this because he would be disqualifying himself for ministry. He considered himself to be a murderer of Christians. The Bible tells us that in the book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 58, chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 10 through 15, and chapter 22, verse 4 and 5. Paul said, I persecuted the way and I led them into death. I consented with their deaths. If that is the case, then how could Paul say this in 1 Corinthians 9? But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul was saying, how can I be preaching to others the requirements that they must have, the godliness that they must, that they must have in their lives as being a follower of Christ, while I cannot meet those requirements myself? That will make him a hypocrite. He will be disqualified. But thank God for the blood of Jesus that was shed for us at Calvary's cross, that has erased our past, that has erased our iniquities. Thank God for that. I can join my voice to the voice of John Newton, author of the hymn we heard before, Amazing Grace, when he says, I am not the man I ought to be, but thank God I am not the man who I used to be. Praise God for his grace in the lives of every elder. And to that I know every elder can say amen. Only by the grace of God we have been called. Only by the grace of God we can be found to be above reproach. And if you are here, perhaps this morning, hearing this message about the qualification of elders, or hearing online or through a CD, there is hope for you. Perhaps the Spirit of God has been ministering to your heart that Jesus Christ is the Savior and you have been feeling the weight of your sins upon your life. But Jesus Christ has died for you so that your past too can be completely erased. Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins at Calvary's cross. Receive the Lord as your Savior as we are going to be praying with an elder at the end of the service. 
We pray that you will be saved today. And so there it is. These are the 14 requirements that an elder must possess to be qualified for the, for the office of elder, bishop, or overseer to pastor the flock of God. And I can say, I could add one more qualification to these that you see on the screen. And it is this one. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. The greatest qualification in the life of an elder is his love for Christ. Without love for the Lord, no matter how qualified the man is, he is nothing. At the end of his ministry on earth, the Lord Jesus looked at Peter and he asked him, Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We praise your name, Lord, for the men whom you have called to be elders of your church. It is such a high responsibility. It is such a reverential position that you have placed on flesh and blood, on men who are nothing but dust. But I thank you, Father, for those who have attained that Position here at Grace Gospel Church by your grace, by your mercy. I thank you for the elders of this church. I thank you for the church leadership here of this assembly of saints. And I pray, Father, that each and every one of us will be able to appreciate even more the calling in the life in the lives of these men. May your blessings be with this ministry. May your name be glorified. May we always be before you, not to our shame, but for the glory of your name. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.